Morning. Morning. Well, that was cheerful. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. That's better. Well, uh, I always think that these, these occasions are a bit like a, a first date. Do you remember your first date? Yeah? Come on. I remember my first date, even though it was a long time ago. Uh, Lynn, my wife, said to me, on our first date, I didn't stop talking all night. Uh, you'll be glad to hear there is a time constraint on me this morning, so I won't be talking all morning, okay? So you'll be happy to hear about that. I also hear that the Archbishop of Canterbury is at Greyfriars this morning. So if you want to leave now and go and listen to him, <laughs> that's fine. Instead, you've got me. My name's Chris Everett, okay? Uh, I've lived in Reading all my life. I'm married with three children uh, who are all grown up. I know I don't look old enough, but they're all grown up. And uh, yeah, I'm the youth pastor here at St. Matthew's. So that's the reason why I'm stood here this morning. I'm not an imposter. Anyway, okay, so let's, uh, let's begin. Uh, before we really get into the passage, if you don't mind, I'd like to just set a little bit of context so that we understand the, 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 the reason for this particular account that we're going to look at. Because just prior to this account that we've just read, and please note I use the word account, okay? I don't use the word story because the Bible is not uh, a kind of parallel to Aesop's fables. You know, the Bible is the inerrant word of God, given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It gives us life, it gives us hope. It's the very words of the one who made the heavens and the earth himself. So it's not a fable, it's not a story. This is something I passionately believe with my whole heart, with my whole soul, 100%. So I'm going to use the word account because I actually believe that this happened. So just prior to this account, we will see that Jesus had just miraculously fed the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish to hand. In reality, the number fed was probably far higher because in Matthew's parallel account, we see that the 5,000 refers only to the men without taking into consideration the women and children. So really, we're looking at Jesus performing a miracle where he's fed probably somewhere in the region of between fifteen to 25,000 people. That's the Modesky Stadium filled to the brim. Can you imagine that with five loaves and two fish? It's probably Jesus' greatest public miracle and involves the most people. And in John's account, because this is, uh, uh, this is spoken of in three gospel accounts in the New Testament, we read that the people were so overwhelmed with the miracle that they actually wanted to take him by force and make him their king. He would be the one who would lead their rebellion and overthrow the yoke of Roman rule. These are indeed tumultuous times. The people are rising up, but Jesus wasn't going along with it. He sends the people away and he compels the people, the disciples, sorry, the 12, to get into the boat. It doesn't say a boat, it says the boat. So it seems to suggest that the disciples had their own boat that they went backwards and forwards over the Sea of Galilee with. So they got into the boat and go somewhere else. So the party is over. So we're going to pick up the passage and I want to try and rattle through it as, as quickly as I can. Pads will be pleased to hear. Uh, and I want to try and look at four aspects 
to this account that I think we can apply to our own lives. Because, you see, the thing is with the Bible, it's not just a storybook. It's not just a book of historical facts and figures, but it's the living word of God. So it means that there is a spiritual application that we can apply to our lives. In other words, we can take this account and we can apply it to our lives metaphorically. We can draw something out of it that can actually give us hope in the life in which we live right now. And the first aspect I want to look at is the aspect of position. Position. Notice that Jesus, at this particular time, is high up on a mountain. And he's talking one-to-one with his heavenly Father. He's praying. Jesus, by the way, is one, of, uh, one equal part of the triunity of God. Okay? He's God in the flesh. He's the God-man. He's the one that came down from heaven, incarnate, God in flesh, who lived amongst us, suffered and tempted in every way, and yet without sin. So here's the thing about that is that there's no one in this room today that will ever be able to look God in the eye and say to him, you will never be able to understand my situation. You'll never know what I lived through. You'll never know what I went through. You'll never know what my child was like. You'll never know what it was like to be rejected. You'll never know what it was felt like to be depressed. You'll never know what it felt like to be down because God will be able to look you back in the eye and say, I know everything that you're going through and times it by a million Because he's lived where we've lived. He's walked where we walked. You see, the the unique thing about the Christian religion is that God came down to us. Every other religion is we're trying to reach God. Every other religion is trying to pull God down. Every other religion is trying to curry favour with God. That's what religion do does. It's a set of rules and regulations. It's where we try to sort of, in our own self-righteousness, make ourselves acceptable to God. But that doesn't work. Because where's the bar for your righteousness? The Bible says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do that can, that can please God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. So it's an impossible task through religion to try and make ourselves acceptable to God. The only thing that can make ourselves acceptable to God is to accept the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. On the cross, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's what, see, the thing is, it's what God did for us, not what we can do for God. That's an amazing thing. That turns religion completely upside down and inside out. So Jesus is one equal part of the triunity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's God in the flesh. He's God who's come down to God to live amongst us. Not only that, but the thing is, the disciples... They're in a boat. Not only that, but they're in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, with a strong wind blowing them into the opposite direction of where they want to go, and they've got no sat-nav. Question. Who's the most stressed in this particular situation? Jesus at one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the disciples by this time probably losing the plot. Let me read something to you from something else in the New Testament in regards to position. This is from Colossians, it's the first chapter. And this is talking about Jesus. You know, to some people, Jesus is just a byword. Jesus is just a word that we use when we want to cuss and blaspheme. You know, before I became a Christian, that's all I ever used to say was Jesus Christ, you know, in the wrong way. 
But Jesus is the name above every other name. Jesus is the name to which your knee and my knee will one day bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is the one who will ultimately hold you accountable and me for the life that we've led. Jesus is the one who's going to come back and judge the world in regard to sin, righteousness and judgment. So the name that everybody seems to think is just a byword is actually the name to which we're going to have to literally bow the knee and confess towards. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one that made the heavens and the earth. This is no character that we can take lightly. This is God himself. And this is what Colossians says. He is, this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to this description of Jesus. Maybe this might change your perception of who he actually is. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him, not because of him, but by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church, not the queen. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's his position, amen? That's his position, Do you want to know what our position is? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you see the disparity? Can you see the disparity? We can see it in this account here. He is high and lifted up. He's on a mountain and we're in a little boat in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night. The second thing I want to look at is an aspect of perspective. You see, even though many of the disciples are fishermen who know the sea and are experienced in handling a boat, they're in trouble. They've probably been on this sea now for a good few hours. And the wind is blowing them in the opposite direction. They can't put up a sail, so they've got to row. They're doing everything that they know what to do because most of them were were actually, like I said, they were mostly fishermen. They're in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night. How many of you know that boats have a tendency to sink? My wife hates getting on ships, let alone boats. All they can see, all their perspective is, is darkness, wind, waves, and more darkness. But Jesus sees them. How? He's on a mountain. The Bible tells us in John's Gospel that they're about three to three and a half miles away, in the middle of the ocean. And it's dark. How does he see them? How does he see us? Because he's God. He sees all things. Nothing is hidden from the sight of him who created the heavens and the earth. That is both reassuring and disconcerting at the same time. You see, when I became a Christian, I had a lot of things that I wanted to hide from people. There was a lot of things in my life that I was ashamed about. I didn't darken the the doors of a church ever in my life. And when someone used to talk to me about Christianity, I would literally laugh in their face. When my grand 
my uh, mother-in-law, sorry, became a Christian. She started telling me about Christianity. I used to tell her that the church was my pub. I used to think the whole thing was a joke. Until one night when my whole life started to unravel before my very eyes, I went to church. Not because I felt I needed God, not because I believed in God, but because I was told to go. Because literally my marriage would have been over if I hadn't gone to church on the 6th of October in 1990. Because my marriage was in, in, on the rocks. I was drinking, I was fighting, I was getting in trouble with police. And I knew that everything was just unravelling. And I was a father. I had two kids at the time. That is not conducive to family life. But I just couldn't hold it all together. As soon as I had a drink in me, I was a violent man. There was a tempest raging in me, a tempest. And yet when I sat under the word of God, when I heard that Jesus loved me, I don't know what it was, but something inside of me realized that for the first time in my life, I could be free. And I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. On that night, there was a lot that God showed me about my life that really, really just shook me to the core. God knows everything about us. And you know something? He can't be mocked. He can't be mocked. One day we're all going to have to give an account. The third aspect is distance. There is seemingly a great distance between the disciples and their Lord, between him and that little boat. But there is no distance so great that can stand between God and those who call on your name. Do you feel distant from God? If you're a believer today, sometimes you can go through times in your life where you feel distant, or you might not even feel that God's not there at all. You might feel that God's not there at all for you. But distance is nothing to God. In Psalm 139, it says this. I'm going to read this to you. It says this. uh, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is nowhere we can hide from God. There's nowhere where we can hide. I tried to do it for 27 years and he found me out. He'll find you out. And so to our last aspect, God's power. I love this because the Greek word for power is dynamis, which is literally the root of our English word for dynamite. You know, how many of you know that the, 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 the religion of Christianity is a religion of power and of authority? Yet so many of us look at Christianity as a wishy-washy thing, probably because, like me, you grew up watching Dad's Army. Do you remember the vicar in Dad's Army? That weedy little man with his long clock, a clock, cloak, and his little horn-rimmed glasses... I'm not kidding, but that was my perception of, 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 of Christianity. That it was completely irrelevant. And in some ways it's meant to be irrelevant. I mean, what's it meant to be relevant to? We're not meant to be part of the world. We're meant to be in it, but not of it. 
In some ways, it is meant to be irrelevant, but in other ways, it's, it's meant to be something that has a real meaning and application to our lives because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're set apart from the animals. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We've been given the unique ability to be able to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's just an amazing thing. But it's power. The gospel message is a message of power. It's a message of hope. It's a message that says to you that no matter how you've lived your life, no matter where you might be, no matter how dark the situation, no matter how much the wind might blow, no matter, no matter how, how much you feel that your life is sinking, God is there. He can rescue you. He can set you free. He can give you life in abundance here on earth and life forevermore in heaven But it's only through the name of Jesus, because his is the name through which we're saved. There is no other way into the kingdom of heaven other than by the name of Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. As I said, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. You will never, ever, ever be good enough to have a relationship with God in your own strength. Ever, ever, ever. There's nothing you can do. People might say, oh, well, I'm a good man. I I do this, I do that, I give to charities. No one is good but God alone. Do you hear me? No one is good but God alone. How can you measure your goodness against the goodness of God? God is holy. There is no evil, there is no sin, there is no unrighteousness in God. You could try for an eternity, but you will never, ever be good enough. You can only be good enough through what Jesus Christ done on the cross because he's good enough. He's the one who's the firstborn from among the dead. He died and rose again so that through his sacrifice we could have life. It's the shed blood of Christ that sets us free from darkness and the power of sin and death. This is the gospel message. This is the message that I responded to on the 6th of October 1990. It set me free. So I'm going to finish up. I'm going to ask some questions. But just a thought before I do. Think about this. The entirety of God's kingdom on earth at this particular time is sat in a little boat in the middle of a sea, in the middle of the night. Just 12 men. The entirety of God's kingdom. A precarious, perilous situation that they find themselves in. Who knows what would have happened if that boat had sank? Who knows whether or not God had a plan B? But potentially, we would not be sat here this morning. Potentially, there would be no baptism. Potentially, there would be no opportunity for you to hear the message of eternal life because everything could have ended on that night. As I say, all they could see, all their perspective was, was darkness, waves and more darkness. I've lost my notes.
So here's my questions. Are you struggling with a circumstance that's beyond your control? Because the disciples were that night. They did everything that they knew how to do, but it wasn't enough. They rode and they rode and they rode and they relied on their own ingenuity and their own power. But it wasn't enough. And you know, sometimes in life, it's not enough. Sometimes you can go through a situation where there's a tragedy, something that just comes in from a bolt from the blue. Generally, people either panic or manage. Most people tend to do a bit of both. They tend to manage. They tend to do what... They know how to do, but it's not enough. Sometimes, no matter how hard you try to control the situation, it's not enough. Are you struggling with sin? Is there something in your life that you just can't shake off? Is there darkness in your life? Darkness is very dark. And I've been in a dark place. And when you're in a dark place, you don't think that the light is ever going to be able to pierce it. But Jesus is the light of the world. No darkness is so dark that his light can't pierce that darkness. Do you feel without hope? Then listen to the words of Jesus. and Let him into your boat. Because that boat for the disciples that night was their life. That was their life. That was the difference between living and dying. You've all got a boat. Look at your life as a boat and ask yourself this. When the winds and the waves come, when the tempest hits, do you sink or do you reach out to Jesus? You see, in Matthew's account, it tells us that Peter actually asked Jesus to command him to walk on the water, which seems like an incredible thing to do. But do you know why I think he'd done that? Because I think he knew that Jesus could calm a storm. He'd already done it. He'd already calmed the storm. And I think he thought to himself, do you know what? It's going to be safer for me to be in the arms of Jesus than to rest on my own understanding and rely on this little boat. Like I said, we all have to give account for the little boat that is our lives. And sometimes, most of the time, you know, the sea... The life that we live in, it's going along just nice. But I've lived long enough to know that it's not always like that. In this veil of tears that we call life, I know that there are tragedies that come. There are things that happen beyond our control. And Jesus is there. You know, when Peter walked towards Jesus on the water, he looked around, he saw the winds and the waves, and he started to sink. And Jesus reached out and and saved him. That's what Jesus does, he saves. What does he save us from? Well, he saves us from the the effects of sin. He he, he saves us from the effects of sin, from the power of sin. He enables us to cross over from, from death and into life. See, the thing is, if you really want to cut to the chase, you'd have to ask yourself this is when you pass on, when you die, where are you going to spend eternity? Maybe you don't ask yourself that question very much. I never did. But we're going to spend eternity in one of two places. My prayer for us is that 
we'll listen to the words of Jesus and we'll ask him into our boat. When he comes in, we'll spend eternity with, with him forever in heaven. There won't be any more tempests. There won't be any more raging seas. It'd be life eternal where there's no more weeping and no more crying. So that is the end of my sermon. I'm going to pray now and hand back over to Pads. Kirsty, sorry. And Pads, whatever. Uh, do you mind if we bow our heads? You don't have to, but... Father, I, I uh, want to give you all the glory. We're here in this place today in your presence. Lord, we acknowledge that before you we are sinners. We acknowledge that apart from you we can do nothing. Pray now, Father God, in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit that the words that have been spoken today will not be the words of a man but the words of your Holy Spirit. May they go deep down into the very basement of our souls. May they accomplish what they've gone out to do. And Lord, if there's anyone here in this room today who doesn't know you, who's going through tumultuous times in their lives, Father, I pray that you'll give them the grace and the faith to be able to reach out to you and to cry out to you that they might be saved. We ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your precious name, the name above every other name, the name to which every knee must bow and every tongue confess, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come and who is forever praised. Amen.